Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Takeout ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high-quality organic dairy, ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. Good morning. It's June 15th. We are coming to you from Ted's Bulletin, one of our frequent takeout restaurants. Always happy to be here. Sheldon Whitehouse is our guest. He is currently the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee. Senator from Rhode Island, Democrat, Sheldon Whitehouse, great to see you. Thank you, Major. So Nice I, to have breakfast with you. Yes, indeed. So I want to ask you, not about your Senate career, we'll yeah. get to that in a minute, but before he was in the Senate, Sheldon Whitehouse was U.S. Attorney from 1993 to 1998, then Attorney General for the state of Rhode Island. And in that period of time, uh, you came across some public corruption cases. We did. You helped prosecute a very well-known mayor in Providence, Rhode Island, named Buddy Cianci. Yeah. I'd like you to tell my audience a little bit about who he was and what, if any, echoes you see in Buddy Cianci and what has transpired this week with the indictment of former President Trump. Well, uh, Buddy was a... um a real character, a figure. Mm-hmm. Kind of a rogue. Rhode Island, definitely a rogue. Yeah. Uh, actually a criminal, mm-hmm. but um, an engaging one and full of uh, star quality. Mm-hmm. As a fat, balding mayor <laughs> of a northeastern city, he would get on the Don Imus show. Mm-hmm and go toe-to-toe with Don Imus and hold his own in the battle of radio whips Mm -hmm. there. So my biggest lesson from uh, Buddy, other than that sooner or later, if you're a crook, you do get convicted, (laughs) is that um, how beloved he was in Rhode Island by so many people. And it, it nagged at me that he should be polling higher than, say, Jack Reed, our senior senator, who's the complete, you know, choir boy, boy scout, army ranger. Army ranger, yeah. Yeah, like... As buttoned down as could possibly be. As perfect as you can be. Right. And then here's this rogue 
right. who is more popular. And mm-hmm. I, I reached the conclusion that um, if you can jump the rails from being viewed as a politician mm-hmm. to being viewed as a celebrity by your public, then different... Even though you're still a politician. Even though you're still a politician. If you present and are accepted as a celebrity, new rules apply. New rules. New different rules standards. apply. Different okay. standards. Way lower standards. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as long as you're continuously entertaining, yeah. you've you met the standard. You've met the standard. And so, you know, I put that into my little, you know, shelf. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's an interesting thing. But highly localized, right? Then along comes Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And the exact same principle plays out at a national scale. Mm-hmm. What is it in the American character that is drawn to the rogue? Well, I mean, we've always been the we have. independence. You know, I mean, rogues we run started through with the revolution, the mythology of our country, yep. and the actual lived yep. experience of our country. The honorable outlaws, right? Butch Cassidy and the mm-hmm. Sundance Kid, all of that. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a very important part of our mythology. And Trump, do you think at some level taps into that? Absolutely. Okay. Does that make him harder to prosecute? No. Because okay. at the <laughs> it makes him more popular while he's prosecuting. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, that shouldn't affect the proceedings in the courtroom at all. It's one of the interesting lessons of our current experience that, you know, in the current sort of uh, bullying battle of our political environment, um, in which the biggest megaphone, loudest megaphone, most dramatic megaphone usually wins Mm -hmm. that when the lying starts if you can get the bully to an honest courtroom they come crashing down they lose fox news comes crashing down and Mm -hmm. has to pay 700 plus million dollars Mm -hmm. to the little election machine manufacturing company that it was abusing donald trump Mm -hmm. has to pay millions to eugene carroll the Mm -hmm. parents of the children massacred at Sandy Hook, are their lawyers going to be chasing that rat? Alex uh, from, Jones. Yeah, Infowars for mm-hmm. the rest of his life to get his assets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so once you get into the four corners of a courtroom, an and facts courtroom, and law are the only thing that matter, not the megaphone. Celebrity doesn't work for you so much any longer. Mm-hmm. All right. So, what is your overall meta view of the indictment and what we saw play out this week? Seems like, you know, really good work. Have you read it? Yeah. Yep. Um, You've written those kinds of indictments. Yeah, and I've reviewed a lot more than I've written. I'm sure. So, uh, I, you know, we always reviewed them all, both as attorney general and as um, U.S. attorney. So there are two ways you go about doing this. One way is you just very sparsely lay out the charges you're going to bring. Right. But don't include evidence. You wait to make your case for the courtroom. Mm-hmm. The other is to actually tell a story in the indictment. The so-called talking indictment. And, and, and show your, not all your evidence, but some of your evidence so that the indictment tells a story. Mm-hmm. Jack Smith obviously has chosen to go the speaking indictment route and mm-hmm. tell a story. Mm-hmm. My guess is that if he's a smart prosecutor, which he is, he's got a lot more good evidence in his holster that he's ready to deploy when motion practice gives him more chances to uh, put material forward. When um, Garland was talking about him yesterday, he said, hey, we speak through our filings, not through our press conferences. We speak through our filings. A prosecutor will plan ahead to hold stuff back 
to speak through filings and add new information as is relevant to the issue at hand in the filings. So uh, people say that an indictment is best on its first day. That's not always true. Mm -hmm. And when the former president's defense team says, well, indictments are always one-sided, you would, of course, agree with that. Yes, they're one-sided. And in the adversarial process, they'll have their day in court. Absolutely. But... And I wonder what your interpretation of uh, former Attorney General William Barr is, but he's pretty emphatic about what this particular indictment reads to him. That yeah, if ha- his, have, to quote him, if half of it's true, former toast. President Trump is toast. Yeah. Do, would you agree with that characterization? I think it's a very, very tough indictment to weather because it is so full of factual information that is backed up by photographic proof, that is backed up by surveillance camera footage, that is backed up by notes of Trump's own lawyers from the room. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to say that in court we're going to be able to disprove where the boxes were when there's a picture of it. Very hard to disprove that Nada moved the boxes at Trump's behest when you've got the records of the phone calls and the tapes of him moving the boxes. So it's um, there's not a whole lot of factual challenge that presents itself as being very likely. As if you were a defense counsel to the former president, is there anything you saw in that indictment that was an opening? I think the um, issue of using his own lawyers. Yes, Evan Corcoran, notes and and voice memos. Now, from a point of view of prosecutorial misconduct, that's gone because they got a court order allowing them to do it. Right. But in the criminal and, uh, proceeding... And it was reviewed by a three-judge panel. Yeah. So it was not just ordered once, it was ordered twice. Yeah. So it's gone, through, criminal, it's gone through the ringer a little bit. It's gone through the ringer a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now you could also you argue... Know, you that, can challenge it. Exactly. You can challenge Give it a second go. Right. And um, then I think, you know, when you're in real trouble, you argue prosecutorial misconduct right. and try to change the topic. So I'm sure we'll see a fair amount of that. But the interesting thing about that is that this is being done by Jack Smith. He's a special counsel, and the attorney general has the responsibility of reviewing the special counsel's behavior to make sure that what he's doing is consistent with the policies, regs, and procedures of the Department of Justice. Not the merits, but compliance with the procedures. And to date, there's been no reporting that even Trump's lawyers have objected to Jack Smith's conduct, that he's violated those guardrails of special counsel dumb. So if, in fact, the uh, use of these things are out of bounds of DOJ policy, they would have raised it. He's got some bonkers lawyers, but he's got some good lawyers. Right, right. And anyone in that position would raise it if they thought they had an ability to prove that or assert that credibly in court. That's the voice of Sheldon Whitehouse, our special guest. Again, good morning. It's June 15th from Ted's Bulletin. We have Ted Tarts and sausage and black coffee, at least for me, coffee with cream and sugar for the senator. We're off to a great start. Segment two in just a second. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back. It's not the perfect breakfast for a six-year-old, but it's pretty close. <laughs> Ted tarts and sausage. Okay, yeah, the black coffee is a bit of an adult uh, additive, but uh, welcome. Back to the takeout. Sheldon Whitehouse is our special guest. Continuing our conversation about the indictment. Um, for a second, just talk about this moment. It's pretty heavy. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird because on the one hand... I mean, we, there, there's a goodness <clears throat> around this, but there's... It, look, we, when, when... And I used to criticize those in my profession for overusing the word unprecedented yeah. around the former president or when he was president or nominee... It was an easy, cliched, oh my gosh, nothing like this has ever happened. But in this particular instance, this is uncharted territory. And at the same time, weirdly, it is also absolutely mundane. Particularly for somebody from my line of work. A grand jury has charged a guy mm -hmm. with a crime following the rules of grand juries and charges. On the happens one hand, all the time. Yeah, happens thousands of times a day around the country. And yet, in this particular case, it's the former president, and that puts a whole new light on it. But you shouldn't overlook the fact of how mundane and ordinary this is. In the sense that it's a transgression... There is a law that covers this transgression. There is evidence that can be presented if that transgression did cross the line, and a judge and jury will hear the facts in the law. Consistent with ancient American traditions. And yet, you've heard the rhetoric. I was at Bedminster at the uh, post-indictment cocktail party, the second I've attended. It's kind of a rarity in American life, a post-indictment cocktail party. There was one in Mar-a-Lago, <laughs> one in Bedminster. And the president said that Jack Smith, the special counsel, is a lunatic thug. Mm -hmm. That this is the worst transgression in American justice in our history. That the Biden presidency is the most corrupt presidency in our country's history. And no one is a greater victim than he. Also, near the end, he said he's been the victim of a seven-year government campaign of psychological warfare. Mm-hmm. I'd like you to evaluate what I just are accurately described the former president saying in his defense. So this individual has thrived in an environment where he can dominate the publicity of things and use his, his gift for bullying to great advantage including in legal proceedings. I mean, if you look at people who've had litigation with him before, it's really had very little to do with actual courtroom stuff. Mm -hmm. It always is the courtroom and the litigation as the platform for a larger public conversation to bully and put pressure on and shout about and all of that. And I think what the president misunderstands here is that experienced prosecutors don't care about that. That's deep noise way off to the side they're going to go about their business and this is going to be concluded 
in an honest courtroom where all of his big talk counts for absolutely nothing at all. It is irrelevant. And I think that's the realization that he ultimately is going to have to come to. He is playing with tools and weaponry for one field of battle. And Jack Smith is going to drag him into a completely different field of battle where that weaponry just doesn't apply. Is there any doubt in your mind, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, that the courtroom, if it is, Aileen Cannon's, will be a fair and just courtroom? Yeah, I think there's really room for doubt. Her opening um, decisions were pretty stunningly bad. And when I say pretty stunningly bad, I'm not just offering my opinion. They were appealed to the 11th Circuit, which is a notoriously conservative circuit, and really slapped back hard in a unusually firm and harshly worded decision. So the judges of her own appellate court have already put a real brand on her as uh, an extremist who's in out of her depth. So two things can happen here. She can realize, oh my God, it's actually time to be a judge here and really settle into her role and do a good job. Or she can keep kind of playing the way she did before, out of bounds, and wait another slap down from the uh, 11th Circuit. And thankfully, uh, the special counsel has some time to sort out which way she's going to go. Because in the early motion practice, he can appeal all of that. But when the jury's impaneled and jeopardy attaches, Mm -hmm. then her decisions become unreviewable on appeal. The prosecution just loses after Jeopardy attaches. She dismisses the case, and it's dismissed. So uh, I think that uh, special counsel is going to be watching her behavior through the early stages of the trial very carefully to see if there's cause to move to recuse her. Do you think there's any possibility or probability that she would recuse herself? It would probably be the uh, prudent thing for her to do. Career-wise, it might be prudent. Um, but I think, you know, there's also a, a conceivable pathway where she says, whoops, I really blew that first one, mm-hmm. and I got smacked down hard, right. and okay, I get the message here. Uh, I'm going to go out there and really play carefully by the rules. And to your point, judges typically don't talk to each other that way, the way that she was talked to by the 11th Circuit three-judge panel that reviewed her special master intervention. It was a pretty stunningly worded decision. And in your experience, they just don't typically do that. No. Right. So that, in your mind, there's a possibility that that resonates with her and maybe influences her future behavior. She's got a judgeship for life. Mm -hmm. And if she wants to be a solitary, weird figure, Mm -hmm. notorious for bad judging and throwing decisions for people, Mm -hmm. that's going to be a very awkward thing for her for the rest of her career sitting on the bench with her colleagues. Wanting to join in with them and be a respected member of that community, she's going to have to play by its rules. Politico wrote earlier this week that there's kind of an edict from the White House for Democrats not to talk about this. Is that a good idea? I think that is a good idea. I think... um, particularly for the uh, executive administration not to talk about it. Uh, because but like leadership hasn't jumped in. Yeah. I mean, mm. Democrats are not running to the microphones. You've yeah. been nice enough to sit yeah. down here and answer my questions. Yeah. But by well, and large... i kind of a technical witness for you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But mostly Democrats are not saying anything about this. And I've listened to some Other progressives the, saying... the process play out. Hey, yeah. get on the rampart. Scream about this. This is a big moment. Kick him while he's down. 
to the extent that the argument made by Trump is that this is all unjust, unfair, and political, there's no point adding energy to that argument by engaging with it. He's desperate to force engagement from Democrats. He'd love nothing more than to have Biden say something about this so that he now has that to spin up. So I think it's, it's both... He, he co- wants you bug-eyed in all the ramparts. Exactly. And the counsel from the White House, the DNC, and others is to hold your fire. Don't engage. Don't engage. Don't add energy to his... We'll carry this conversation over into the next segment, but you were appointed by Bill Clinton, a U.S. attorney. Yeah. You have heard the assertions that Hillary Clinton is being held to a completely different standard, that she should have been prosecuted by the, by the FBI and by the Justice Department for her mishandling. Yeah. And mishandling is the proper word. It's not mine. Yep. It's what's in the record yep. of classified information and conversations on an unsecured private server. Your thoughts? Well, Jim Comey mm-hmm. was the head of the FBI at the time. He was no friend to Hillary Clinton. He repeatedly broke department rules. By having a press conference. By having a pre- an unauthorized press conference on a matter he's not supposed to be talking about at, at all, all that did immense damage to her campaign. He had... He fired two press conference torpedoes into the Hillary Clinton campaign, both of which were inconsistent with proper Department of Justice behavior. So this is no friend to Hillary Clinton. But at the end of the day, he said, after having looked at all of this, she was reckless. Some of this was irresponsible. But no reasonable prosecutor, he said, no reasonable prosecutor would charge a crime on these facts because there is no crime here to be charged. So... That was what the FBI said. They had done the work. They're the same source. In this case, it's completely different because what the case is really about is not just Trump having documents. But the obstructive behavior alleged after that. More on that when we come back. It's Ted's Bulletin. It's breakfast time. It's June 15th. Sheldon Whitehouse is here. Back for segment three in just one second. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I'm Mo Rocca, and I'm excited to announce season four of my podcast, Mobituaries. I've got a whole new bunch of stories to share with you about the most fascinating people and things who are no longer with us. From famous figures who died on the very same day to the things I wish would die, like buffets. Listen to Mobituaries with Mo Rocca on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to our conversation with Sheldon Whitehouse, Democratic Senator of Rhode Island. Um, to that point, when James Comey had that press conference, it did have political consequences for Hillary Clinton's campaign. He didn't have another press conference, but he released a press release very late in the campaign. Both of those, as you mentioned, outside of established FBI and Department of Justice behavior. It, it read to me at the time, Senator Whitehouse, we can't prosecute this, but we're going to... Cause pain. Is the word politicize it? 
what I'm searching for? I don't know, but I'm I'm curious how you viewed it at the time. Did you find that to be outrageous or objectionable? Very, very. As U.S. attorney, particularly, I had very strict rules about not talking about cases. You heard Attorney General Garland saying, in criminal investigative matters, we speak only through our filings. If you are not going to file a criminal complaint against which the defendant has all the rights and opportunities to defend, to just use your megaphone to smear a citizen and then not file charges is a very, very bad prosecutive act. And in essence, that's what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And I think he was doing it to make himself look good, that he was some tribune of ethics. And even though he couldn't make a case, he was going to somehow give her a good scolding to position himself as Mr. Mr. Ethical. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is that it was unethical and very inconsistent with proper prosecutive behavior. Because it had been my experience, Senator Whitehouse, covering matters of this kind at the local, state, and federal level, it was a one line from a U.S. attorney. The case is, well, the case, the investigation is over. Yeah. It is ended. Yeah. No charges will be filed, period. Period. Not, oh, and by the way, he's sleeping with his secretary, and I disapprove of that. Right. <laughs> So, because I do think there is a kind of misremembering of the consequence of that press conference, how unusual it was, and how athwart FBI and Department of Justice protocol it was. Yeah. And that it stood out as a scolding. Yep. We can't prosecute this, but by God. We're going to have a thing to say to you. and And to your point, and as any rival campaign would... It was adroitly put to use by then nominee Trump. Lock her up, yeah. making this a huge issue. Yeah. Hey, is Russia, that, find those 30,000 right, Is that relevant emails? in this prosecution? His orientation to Hillary Clinton, his statements, is that relevant or is that just sort of nominally on the record important but not central to a successful or unsuccessful prosecution? Within the four corners of the courtroom, I don't think it even comes in. Okay. Um, it was referred to in the indictment, but probably not in, in, in the course in, of the... In, the... in the sense that in responding to it, candidate Trump laid out very clearly the importance of national security information being properly protected mm-hmm. and the imperative of protecting that national security information with proper prosecutions were justified. So he undercut any argument that Oh, I didn't know this was wrong. That's why that's in the indictment. That's not to bring the Hillary Clinton thing in. That's to show that he has basically given up mm-hmm. uh, any argument that, oh, really? These are national security documents? Oh, that's wrong? Mm-hmm. Something else happened this week I want to run by you. On the Senate floor, a long-serving member of the United States Senate, Charles Grassley, gave a speech earlier this week in which he said there is a document in the possession of the FBI that is partially redacted, but that he believes provides evidence suggestive that 17 different phone calls have been recorded, 15 with Hunter Biden, two with President Bi- then Vice President Biden, that he asserted on the floor of the United States Senate would reveal a bribery scheme to influence U.S. policy and pay off the Biden family. Have you reviewed any of that information? Do you know anything about that and what's your reaction? 
I haven't. And um, if you look at the pattern of Republican behavior towards Democratic presidents, <clears throat> it is always to throw accusations of misconduct and criminality at them that over time evaporate, but it becomes the theme of the day and it allows them to rally their base. And um, at this point, there is literally zero public evidence to back up any of that. It's uh, political assertions on the Senate floor. Do you consider Charles Grassley a serious person? He is my ranking member on the budget committee. Mm -hmm. We have done a lot of good work together. He has a long history of oversight. He has a long history of aggressive oversight. Not always favorable to Republicans or Republican presidents? Not inevitably. Right? No. I actually like Chuck. Mm -hmm. Do you think he's off the rails on this one? I don't know because I haven't seen these documents that are very restricted. In 1023 is the terminology. Huh? 1023. It's a uh, <clears throat> FBI form for yeah. with dealing with confidential sources. You're familiar yeah. with that in general. Only the, in the, general, yeah. Right. So I can't... To a dispassionate American, accusations like that sound serious. Yeah. To that dispassionate American who's like... Well, now, but remember, uh, obviously, would be, would be listening to say, okay, yes, you're a partisan Democrat, okay, but you're experienced in this field. What would you say? Hey, Senator, that sounds strange and troubling to me. Wait for real evidence. Mm-hmm. Eventually, these decisions, particularly if they have any criminal law aspect to them, need to be made on the basis of real evidence, not third-party surmise based on a statement from somebody else that may or may not be true by somebody who may or may not be credible that's now been reported in a form that has never been subject to scrutiny and is now being used by partisan political figures, guess what? Oh, to attack the president they're trying to de- defeat and discourage. Is that what this feels like to you at this, ba- at this point? Completely. Okay. Hunter Biden is under investigation, active investigation. That's not a secret in Washington. Not a secret. Do you think he's in jeopardy? Uh, I think it probably is uh, fairly serious, which doesn't mean that he doesn't emerge from it you know without charges at the end of the day but it's not a frivolous thing the investigation the investigation and some of his underlying conduct is troubling but i think he'd be the first to admit that yes <clears throat> as a democrat do you find that politically jeopardizing for either the president or the party in general the hunter bidenism yeah. of the campaign i i don't um i think Joe Biden has established himself in the public mind in a very solid way over many, 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 many years of service. Um, a family member with an acknowledged drug and drinking problem who uh, went off the rails during episodes of that problem um, is a very familiar situation for many, many American families. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that whatever the problems are that Hunter Biden is ultimately proved to have had will do much to disturb the reputation and the brand of Joe Biden. At worst, he's a guy who loves a troubled son who has been through a bad patch and has now recovered. Any doubt in your mind that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee in 2024? Very little at this point. There's not even a real alternative uh, on the horizon for him. 
What accounts for consistent polling data that shows at least 40, sometimes higher than that, Democrats, 40% or more, don't want them to run again? Well, I think um, we'd certainly, I think everybody would certainly like a younger Joe Biden. <laughs> you know, I think the people are concerned about an 80-year-old president. Um, and I think that's an issue that President Biden is going to have to deal with on the campaign. Can't go away. Can't go away. And I think so far he's done a good job of dealing with it by saying, you know, being able to do 50 push-ups is not necessarily what makes you a good president. Having the wisdom and judgment and the patience and prudence mm -hmm. and the knowledge of how the system works to deliver for the American people, to produce the infrastructure bill, to produce the exit from covid to put the first major piece of climate legislation forward, to watch construction, manufacturing construction, factory building, going through the roof in America right now, that's a pretty good story to tell that, you know, he's actually a wise and able uh, person to lead us. That is the voice of Sheldon Whitehouse. Our special guest, Ted's Bulletin, is our host restaurant. Back for segment four of The Takeout in just one second. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Stephen Colbert here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with my producer, Becca. Becca, what's what's up? So The Late Show Pod Show is everything you love about The Late Show on oh, a I podcast. Want, I want to know about you. Oh. I, enough. We, 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 people see everybody in an ad talks about the thing they're trying to sell. Oh. I'd like to know about you, the person behind creating the podcast. Oh, I'm having a really good day. Barry baked some bread and my friend Kara got me some chicken salad. It's a really nice day in the office today. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, Sheldon Whitehouse, our special guest. So the Supreme Court is nearing the end of its summer session. There are several cases we're going to get opinions on. Yep. I want to get your thoughts on affirmative action, on the president's student loan relief yep. efforts. Do you think either will be overturned by this Supreme Court? This is a Supreme Court right now that is very hard to predict. Mm-hmm. Um, they have largely given up on following precedent if they don't like the precedent. Um, the most predictable thing about them is the alignment of the majority's decisions with the interests of big right-wing donor groups. And then you get these very weird variations like the recent Alabama decision on voting rights on voting rights that completely blew up the unblemished record of this right-wing majority in disassembling and destroying the Voting Rights Act. It was an astonishing 180 by two of the justices. Justice Roberts so it and makes Justice them, Kavanaugh. Yep, it makes them very hard to predict Are you right fearful now. about the future of affirmative action and the president's student loan forgiveness? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you can go through a whole list of, of uh, areas that are important to uh, the Republican far right, uh, where the Supreme Court has now become the delivery vehicle 
for the victories that they've been seeking in some cases for decades, whether it's dark money, anti-abortion, corporate power, uh, lack of election transparency, all of that. And you have, in some of your speeches about the Supreme Court, suggested it is an illegitimate body for the very reasons you just suggested. Captured, yeah. Do you regret any of that rhetoric? Do you think that harms the idea of uh, the solidity of American institutions? I um, reflected long and hard um, about how I should handle this. Mm -hmm. But once I had reached the conclusion, backed by a lot of evidence, that this was actually a captured court in the same way that Regulatory agencies have been captured through American history. Mm-hmm. You know, the railroad barons take over the Railroad Commission, put their people on it, and what do you know? Next thing you know, they're winning all the rate cases that they bring. That's the model. Mm-hmm. Regulatory capture imparted to the Supreme Court. Once you come to believe that, and I do believe that, and I think I could backstop my belief with a lot of evidence. I won't bore you with it all now, but I wrote a book about it. Sure, yes, indeed. Um, now your question is, would you prefer to have a captured court that nobody understands is captured? Or would you prefer to tell the truth about it and through that truth open the avenues for repair so that we have a proper court again? And that was a hard call, but I made it and um, I stand by it. I don't regret it at all. Because there are those who look at the tenor of our times and say it is those on the right right now who are constantly assailing institutions in our country, weakening their superstructure, their infrastructure, their foundations, and thereby weakening the entire experiment of this country. Yep. You don't associate your descriptions of the Supreme Court as a captured court in a similar vein? No, because I don't attack the court as an institution. I attack the behavior of this court mm-hmm. as out of the traditions of the court as an institution, whether it's its pattern of decisions or whether it's penchant for improper secrecy or whether it's violation of norms and ethics rules that every other federal judge has to follow. Uh, this is a court that has taken itself very much out of the traditional bounds of judicial behavior And if there's one group that knows that, that I take some solace uh, in the judgment of, it's other federal judges. And I think if you ask people, pretty much anybody who knows a federal judge, to have a quiet conversation with that federal judge about what they think of the Supreme Court's behavior, the feedback is pretty brutal. Mm -hmm. Because federal judges know what the rules are, so they know, like no other audience, how the Supreme Court has been misbehaving. When it com- I want you to finish this sentence for me, if you could. When it comes to ethics and transparency, Associate Justice Clarence Thomas is? Out of bounds. Is that all? Well, out of bounds is a lot for a Supreme Court justice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, some of the things that are... What is out of bounds specifically in your mind? Well, give you an example. Um, one of the absolutely sort of mandatory guardrails for proper judging is to recuse from cases in which you have a conflict of interest. It's not only proper judicial behavior, it's actually a law that requires it. So a judge's recusal obligations are very significant. 
here comes the January 6th case. The Supreme Court has to rule on whether or not the January 6th commission can get access to communications with the White House. Within those communications are communications between Justice Thomas's wife and the White House chief of staff. He does not recuse himself, and he rules that the commission should not get access to those communications. So that's as direct as it gets from your That's as vantage, direct as it gets. From your and, vantage and, point. And the, the key fact that will determine whether his failure to recuse was lawful or unlawful is what he knew about his wife's conduct, what he knew about her role in the insurrection activities at the time. That is a question of fact. It is the key question of fact to make that determination of lawfulness. And he has never made that clear. He has never been obliged to make a proper statement. Can the Senate do anything about that? Well, we're working our way towards it at the moment. The um, I've certainly raised the point often enough that I think there'll be pressure on the court to improve its behavior this way. Um, and is a subpoena possible? Uh, subpoenas are possible to look into this question for sure. Um, whether a subpoena is yet appropriate in terms of where we are in our investigative stage for a member of the court himself and whether the court would actually allow itself to be subpoenaed. Those are all open questions. That big breath you took in is We're an early stage. That, it's, it's heavy. That, would be he- that would be a heavy, heavy task. Yes, and if you're, you know, I come out of a prosecutorial background, mm-hmm. um, and as you're working towards uh, an outcome in a case, there's steps that you go through. You build the case in a in a sequence. You work your way up towards the main target. For instance, if you're doing a criminal gang uh, case, so you don't just leap to charging the head of the mob. You first work your way through the cases, flip the people who are on the street, get them to say who their uh, bosses are, work your case towards the bosses, and work your way up. And this isn't exactly the perfect analogy, but in the same way, there has to be, I think, proper order to how you do an investigation, and you don't just jump to, let's subpoena Justice Thomas. That is the voice of Sheldon Whitehouse. So concludes this portion of The Takeout. Stay tuned for The Takeout Outtake Special. Our thanks to Ted's Bulletin. We'll see you next week. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery+. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to your takeout outtake especial. Ted's Bulletin is our host restaurant. Sheldon Whitehouse, our special guest, chairman of the Budget Committee on the Senate side, Democrat from Rhode Island. Did the President of the United States, Senator Whitehouse, get fleeced in any way on the 
debt ceiling deal? I don't think so. I think... Um, Are you happy with it? Not at all. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Uh, but I think once the Republicans in the House had created the dilemma of threatening the credit of the United States of America, two things were true. One, the president personally was masterful in negotiating that back to minimum damage. Second, nobody in the country got any advantage from this. It might have been minimum damage, but it was no good. And I think that's the president recognizes that. And I think that's why he's not going around taking big victory laps for his achievement. Politically, in the scrum of politics, masterful. For the public that he's out there to serve, that he cares about, nothing good in it. So let's move on. Why didn't the Senate Democrats pass their own debt ceiling piece of legislation to raise the debt ceiling and say, okay, House Republicans, you did your version. Here's our, let's fight it out that way. Because the uh, president had proposed a budget of his own. Mm-hmm. And you in the Senate, the floor. in the Senate, there was really no need. There was no real objection to it. Mm-hmm. And the battle in this case was between the MAGA crowd and Speaker McCarthy and the president. Right. And as Mitch McConnell said, Senate's not, Senate's not in this. This is the speaker right. okay. and the president. And that's how it played out. So there was no point creating a sideshow when we were solid behind the president's budget and we thought that was a, a good place to, to begin. How difficult is it a conversation within the Senate Democratic cloakroom about the future of Senator Feinstein? I think she's being astonishingly brave right now. Is she being unfairly pressured? I think people misunderstand the situation. The situation is that the rule that allowed the Republicans to block her having a temporary replacement on the Judiciary Committee while she was ill also allows them to block her having a permanent replacement if she resigns from the Judiciary Committee, also allows them to block her having a permanent replacement if she resigns from the Senate. So if it's so all this angst on the left and progressives saying, get her out of there, get her out of there. We can fix it this way. You can't fix it. The pressure for her to resign puts into Mitch McConnell's hands the question whether Democrats control the Judiciary Committee. Why would you want to give that power to Mitch McConnell after you saw what he did to Justice Garland? How's she doing? I think it's really difficult. You know, she's a perfectionist about herself. She's one of the most talented women ever to serve, one of the most talented people ever to serve, and her physical condition is is not good. And yet, she soldiers up, mm-hmm. and she does the one thing that protects our Senate Judiciary majority so that we can continue doing our work, and that is to show up, to not resign, to be present, to vote, and to do her job. I admire that. You've seen enfeebled men serve in the Senate, haven't you? Oh, gosh, yes. Is she being held to an unfair standard? Um, I think I'd go back to what I said earlier. I think the problem is people misunderstand what the circumstance is around her mm-hmm. and what the consequences are of her resigning. And that misunderstanding is what drives all the intensity. I think it is, Mm -hmm. because I think that many of the people who are urging that she should resign would be very disappointed if Mitch McConnell were given the keys to our Democratic Senate 
Judiciary Committee majority, and he could turn it off. We'll see. We've seen what he does around judges and judicial appointments. So we have three questions we ask all of our guests. You can take these in whatever order you choose. Uh, Most influential book in your life, favorite movie, and favorite kind of music? Uh, Most influential book in my life, I really uh, loved Troublesome Young Men by Lynn Olson about all the young parliamentarians around Winston Churchill and that great internal battle. Really uh, terrific book. A favorite movie, I hate to go back to Winston Churchill again, but I think Darkest Hour Darkest is Hour. a pretty stunning a movie. movie. Great performance by the actor who played Winston Churchill. Doesn't look like him at mm-hmm. all. Right. And favorite kind of music, I would say uh, Traveling Willoughbys and Willie Nelson. There you go. Sheldon Whitehouse, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Senator. Thanks. We'll see you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Takeout ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises... When is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcasts.